0: Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Hi, everyone. With the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, we have been reflecting on abortion access and what that's looked like in the United States over time, particularly before Roe v. Wade was passed. For this week's episode, we wanted to bring back a history from our archives about underground abortion networks. Abortions have and will always exist, but the means that pregnant people access them may not always be safe. So here's the story of how a community of women came together, as we are now, to bring about abortion care to those who need it.
1: So in this episode, we're going to be talking about the abortion underground networks in the United States. Around this topic we'll be talking about various abortion laws, the networks that emerged to provide safe care, and the prevalence of unsafe abortions today. And now I know abortion is a controversial topic and it has been and always will be. So if abortion conversations are not exactly your cup of tea, I totally understand, but I encourage you to listen to this episode not to change your opinion or your beliefs, but to obtain a new perspective on this complex women's health issue to take with you into future discussions. And I know from researching this episode, I've learned a lot, and I'm very eager to share it with you all. But before we get into it, as always, Alicia, do you know anything about underground
0: abortion networks? No. Well, okay. So it's funny because this topic was something that we talked about doing even before the podcast was Mm -hmm. a thing like I remember so so vividly the summer after we graduated from college we were walking like towards one of our friends houses I think and we were passing like this specific building and I remember you telling me about how you read this content somewhere or listened to this podcast about like underground abortion networks Mm -hmm. and how women would use like really like heinous means of abortion procedures people would use like hangers and really really scary things to abort a pregnancy and then we had kind of a a smaller conversation about this topic at that time and that was like Mm -hmm. over a year ago so that's all I probably over two years ago oh I guess two years ago now yeah (laughs) that's crazy that is crazy and so I'm really excited to learn more about it because I remember you telling me that you were going to find out more and tell me one day. And like, here we are. <laughs> Today is the day.
1: Wow. I kept my word. Yeah. I actually, that was from listening to Science Versus, which is a great podcast people should check out. And just the topic was the Underground Abortion Networks. And they specifically like interviewed a woman who had been a part of it and like really got into talking about like how it worked. So yeah, people should check that out because it. Covers like a lot of stuff that I'm not going to cover. But yeah. All right. So let's get into covering all the information and learning more about this crazy thing. Let's do it. All right. So we will begin with a short history of abortion legislation in the United States in order to provide some background to our conversation. Okay, so this little bitty wee history begins in the 18th century when abortion was actually legal in the U.S. and it was not wow. only legal, but it was widely practiced, and it was allowed by the Catholic Church. What? <laughs> I know, crazy, right? Like, wait, so it what? Like a, yes, like yes, the whole but, Catholic
0: Church, or just like the
1: cat? I mean, I don't know what the Pope thought in that moment, oh, okay. but the Catholic, <laughs> the Catholic Church in the United States allowed abortions.
0: I don't understand how the Catholic Church works. Just want to throw yeah. that out there. I'm not expecting you to explain it to me. I just want I that to either. be out in the universe so that maybe <laughs> I'll find out one day. Okay, please continue. Maybe in two years,
1: it'll come back around <laughs> to you and it'll be explained. It's my time. It'll, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So basically, the common rule was that abortion was legal before a woman felt the quickening in her, which was basically like the baby moving. So it was thought that once they felt the baby move, it signaled the soul of the baby. And therefore, abortion was no longer legal after that point. So it wasn't like fully legal throughout all terms. But rarely, when we're talking about abortion, are we talking about abortion to the of a pregnancy either. And this is a really unique situation because that quickening feeling is completely dependent on the woman's word in a way. Like she's the one that feels Mm. the baby moving. She has to be the one to admit that that is what is happening in her pregnancy. So the system of abortion being legal until that point really required for people to believe women And it kind of gave women the autonomy to like say what was happening to them and the people had to believe them. So it was a lot different than healthcare we see today where women are not really listened to. Instead, this was a system that depended
0: on believing the patient, which I thought was like kind of special and different. That is a a foreign concept, but still nice. So
1: abortion was legal for a time and it wasn't until the 1880s that abortion became criminalized except to save a woman's life. And what do you think led to this change in heart in the U.S., Alicia? What, what could cause abortion to become criminalized?
0: Spitball anything you got. The Pope decided <laughs> that it wasn't okay anymore. Nope, it doesn't have to do with the church. Didn't have to do with the church? Nope. What's the time period again? 1880s. Was it the Civil War? No. Was it systemic racism? <laughs> a little bit, yes. Was it I'm confused. I don't know. I don't know. You're on to something. You're definitely on something. Tell me more.
1: So it was actually the emergence of the American Medical Association. Oh my God. Literally, so physicians of the time were on a mission to outlaw abortion for a couple of absurd but not really surprising reasons. And the first of these reasons was the need to monopolize the medical like healthcare system, the need for physicians to be the main provider. Because as we know from past episodes, physicians weren't exactly everyone's favorite medical personnel for a while. You know, a lot of people depended on midwives and nurses and people who had a lot more experience than physicians did at the time. So they were really desperate to take a hold of the system. So by outlawing abortion, physicians were effectively pushing healthcare providers such as midwives who did perform abortions out of mainstream health care. And mm. physicians also pushed for anti-abortion laws because they believed that abortions undermined a woman's traditional role in the home and also threatened the number of wealthy women giving birth. This is where the systemic racism starts to play in because mm. they feared that Poorer women and women of color would be giving birth quicker than wealthier women. So that's why they want to outlaw abortion, because they need wealthier women, which are usually white women, to continue giving birth. Great. One doctor, Dr. Storer, who's apparently one of the fathers of gynecology. Why? Why? (laughs) I don't know why he's a father. I
0: don't understand.
1: Yeah, because he literally, he was a huge component of anti-abortion like push at the time. And he even said that Anglo-Saxon women should avoid abortion to preserve their cultural dominance in the U.S. Absolutely disgusting that this is the history of the American Medical Association. Uh, And following the movement by the AMA, therapeutic abortions, which are abortions that are take place in order to save the woman's life were also made illegal in 1895, so 15 years later. And it Mm. wasn't for another almost 65 years that laws were starting to dramatically change when the American Law Institute proposed legal abortions in cases of fetal abnormality, rape, incest, and threats to women's health, which shouldn't really come as a surprise because that's a lot of Laws today that talk about, oh, no abortions except for these instances. So that's kind of right. where it began. And then 10 years later, in 1973, Roe versus Wade was passed in the Supreme Court, ruling safe and legal abortion, a constitutional right for a woman in the United States. Key, a key turning point. Huge. The court ruling stated that previous claims that the fetus held its own personal rights was rejected by the Constitution, which claims that a fetus only holds rights after birth when it becomes a baby outside the human body. Interesting. So okay. that was the ruling. But of course, this isn't the end of legislator changes in abortion. In 1992, another Supreme Court ruling called Planned Parenthood versus Casey was passed that once again upheld a woman's right to abortion but not without some devastating fallbacks. Mm. So when Roe versus Wade was passed 20 years prior to this ruling, there were certain restrictions on abortion laws. They kind of divided pregnancy up into the three trimesters, and then laws were determined based on those trimesters. And it helped so that women in earlier trimesters were always allowed to have abortions, and then laws could be put on in the later trimesters which is when less women have abortions in general. But after the case in 92 with Planned Parenthood, these laws changed and allowed for abortion laws to be placed at any point in the pregnancy, as long as they still gave a woman choice in the end, no matter how small that choice for an abortion may be. Mm. And man, did anti-abortion lawmakers eat this up. They began over from 1992 to today Picking away at abortion laws just left and right. Laws have come up that criminalize certain abortion techniques, even techniques that are the common use of practice will be criminalized to stop abortions. They'll criminalize specific ages of gestation. So maybe when there is a fetal heartbeat heard or certain amount of weeks, um, abortions no longer allowed after or restricting different reasons for abortion. So maybe it has to do with rape or incest. And they're putting distinct reasons that women have to have to have an abortion. It's just another way to restrict it. Yeah. Requirements um, have also come up that require women to learn every detail of the procedure, hear the fetal heartbeat, or see the baby on an ultrasound before undergoing the procedure in a hope that it guilts the woman into not going through it or just makes them feel terrible and not do it again, just awful things that right. a patient shouldn't have to endure at the doctor's office when they're going through a really hard time. And this list of legislation goes on and it fluctuates over the years as laws are passed and repealed, and lawmakers go in and out with different opinions on abortion. And even as recent as 2019, 58 abortion restriction laws were put in place in states such as Ohio, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Utah, etc. And if anyone remembers, those all happened like all at once. So with laws changing all the time, it's no wonder what women must have experienced or thought over all these years. They're never really sure of what they could or couldn't do pertaining to abortion. They weren't sure of what their physicians or their neighbors might think of them, depending on what ideas about abortion were relevant at that time. So with no consistency in policy, how could a woman depend upon their doctor? Or how do they even know where to find a doctor, depending on what that state's law is in that year? So some recent statistics pertain to this Topic come from the Gut Matcher Institute. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's a they specifically report on abortion data every four years. So this is the fourth year, so the most recent data is from 2017. So their new data will be coming out this year. But to provide some perspective, there are about nineteen thousand OBs in the United States, and there are only 1,587 abortion providers in the US as wow. of 2017 in only 808 clinics. And this is the entire United States. Oh my god. Which means that 89% of United States counties do not have an abortion clinic. Yeah. And 38% of women from about 14 to 44, which is typically the age you would have a child, live in a county that does not have an abortion clinic. Mm. So lots of women in the US alone, have a really hard time finding an abortion provider. And these numbers are from 2017. And then like I mentioned in 2019, there were a lot of laws passed in various states that restricted abortion. So these clinic numbers have just gone down in a lot of areas, making it even harder for women to find care. So how does this leave women for their abortion options today? Or even worse, what was it like before Roe v. Wade? And this leads us to the emergence of the underground abortion networks. Mm -hmm. And now, what do I mean exactly by this? Well, these underground abortion networks are groups of women and men sometimes who in secret provide illegal but safe abortions to anyone seeking with no questions asked. So we're going to focus on two underground abortion networks and kind of like compare and contrast them today. All right. The first one is from 1969, where two University of Chicago students, one by the name of Heather Booth and another woman who was unnamed, but nicknamed by like journalists and such, Jenny. Heather Booth became interested in abortion after referring a friend to a physician who was willingly um, able to illegally carry out abortions. And soon, word got around that there was a doctor who would perform such abortions. And the requests of women seeking such physician began to grow exponentially, coming through Booth saying, like, "Oh, le- can you refer me to your doctor friend? Like, I really need that." And Booth is like, "Wow, this seems to be something going on." And then Jenny, on the other side, herself was seeking out abortion through her hospital because she was a cancer patient. So at the time, you could petition to your hospital board to allow you to get an abortion if it was at risk to your own health. So for Jenny, she was going through cancer treatments, which is not great if you're pregnant for your own health or the baby's. So she was seeking an abortion. And she eventually was granted the abortion. But afterwards, she was just extremely displeased with how complex the process was, how long it took, and how it was so dominated by male figures looking down upon her the entire time. So together, Jenny and Heather Booth started this abortion counseling service known more formally as the Women's Liberation Union of Chicago and casually as the Jane Collective, Mm. which operated out of the south side of Chicago. Yeah, and there's like documentaries you can watch on the Jane Collective. A lot of research has been done on it which is cool. So the Jane Collective's ultimate goal was to reduce the number of unsafe and expensive abortions provided by unqualified individuals. Mm -hmm. So women were often faced with horrible procedures that I'm not going to get into because they're so graphic, but women would drink poison. They would impale Uh, themselves through their vagina to try to harm uh, the fetus or get into their uterus, or they would try to even like flush their uterus with unsafe materials really bad stuff and it would often be at a very high cost and a low benefit kind of just people scamming women to try to get a profit out of it yeah it's awful so the jane collective fought to end this for women as they first identified gynecologists willing to take patients and perform such abortions safely and they just endlessly referred these patients through the jane collective to these doctors But eventually, it became too much, and the Jane Collective members wanted to learn themselves how to perform abortions. So their gynecologist friend taught them a safe and simple way to perform at-home abortions. Mm -hmm. And this gave the Jane Collective members the ability to personally provide care to the women seeking out their organization. Wow. I know. So they learned abortions, and they also learned female anatomy and like self examinations and just kind of what's going on down there so that they could teach their patients about you know what their own health and about their own anatomy. And also I should note the abortions they learned weren't like late term abortions they were early term where you could it was a lot of like suction methods things like that. Okay. But from here on out the collective like really grew as they started to provide abortions do pretty much health education for patients. They provided child care to women seeking health care. So, I mean, a lot of times like women have a hard time going to the doctor because there's no one to watch their kids and you can't really right. bring your kids to the doctor a lot of time. So they would have places for the kids to hang out while their moms or whoever were um, receiving care. They also would provide food and a lot of them sit on couches, like really building this warm, homey environment for the patients while they were seeing the Jane Collective providers which were, like, not doctors, just these women running this organization. Also, during the procedures, women were cared for from the very beginning to the very end, making sure the process was seen through to the fullest. So a woman was never just pushed out the door after receiving an abortion with, like, no post-abortion care. Like, they were always seen throughout their entire treatment to make sure that it was safely done. Mm. Also, every step of the abortion process would be explained to the patient so that she was never left in the dark about what was going on to her body. She was very well-informed, and um, it was not to shame her, as many practices require today. I mentioned before, like, abortion practices have to be explained to women or they have to hear the right. heartbeat, like, things that are meant to shame the woman. And it's not that in this case. It's rather to make her feel really safe and cared for. Yeah, yeah. so the Jane Collective is doing. All these honestly really great things for the women in their care and at no cost, no questions asked, doesn't matter their race, anything, social and economic status, whatever. They can go to these women. So the Jane Collective was able to provide this new kind of female healthcare system to the women of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And in this system, women were not distanced from providers or seen as different. They were treated as equals with their healthcare providers. Some say they're even treated as just their sisters. And through this way of treatment, the Jane Collective was able to serve at least 12,000 women over a four-year period. Wow. Yeah.
0: Which is That's a lot. So impressive.
1: And the Collective only really stopped its operation because the police ended up raiding the main office. And this is kind of funny. They entered and they were like, where's the doctor? Like, where is he? You know, they're expecting, like, this doctor being in there performing abortion. Dude, yeah. And there's no doctor. It's only these women doing it. And they're like, yeah. what? And they're like, they're doctor. And they're like, there's there's no doctor here. So seven women, nicknamed the Jane Seven, were eventually taken into custody. But their trial never went through because Roe versus Wade was passed when they were mm. awaiting trial. So they were allowed to walk free in the end. That's good. Yeah. So this unique type of care really made a huge difference at a time when women were afraid to tell their doctors about their smoking habits, let alone their sex life.
0: Right. There was
1: really a divide between women and their doctors within traditional like healthcare offices that pushed them to this underground abortion network in the 1960s. Mm. But you might be shocked to hear it isn't really that much different today. So even though abortion is legal, as we know, abortion rights are constantly being restricted across the United States and even the world. Right. Like I mentioned before, about ninety percent of U.S. counties don't have an abortion provider, and the general taboo of abortion stops many women from even stepping inside a clinic that provides them with care. Or if a woman does have the courage to even receive an abortion, who's to say that she can afford it? And so. What do you think a woman's alternative choice is today, Alicia, if they have all these factors against them for receiving abortions,
0: like in today's world? I mean, it's similar to the past, I imagine, where she would either take matters into her own hands, or perhaps she knows someone who could do something for her. But I have never been pregnant, so I don't know what this weight or burden feels like if you have a pregnancy that you don't want to carry. And so I just can't imagine like how stressful that would be. Like I, if I were in that space, one, I would go to Planned Parenthood, but two, mm-hmm. like if I didn't have the option to go to Planned Parenthood, I, I would do what I had to do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even if you want to go to Planned Parenthood and there's protesters out front that make you feel like a terrible person, like who's to say you're going to go still? Yeah. So, yeah, it's all true. So even today, underground abortion networks exist. So across the United States, women or men, whoever, can attend week-long seminars in secret where they learn the intricates of female anatomy and the practice of safe at-home abortions. And a particular an article I read was talking about a particular woman by the name of Renata
0: Renata.
1: Renata, maybe, yeah, who attended one of these seminars so that she could hold her own at-home abortion clinic on the west Coast. And she was specifically trying to provide care for women of low income or of immigration mm-hmm. status who might mm-hmm. not be able to go to, like, normal legal abortion clinics. Yeah. So she was targeting women who just have no other option but to resort to illegal practices. And she wanted to make sure that they were able to do it in a safe manner. And so she opened her clinic. She started providing safe abortions. And she was doing so at a cost of only $25. Wow. It was a pretty affordable cost for healthcare. And most of the time, it wasn't this like suction method that a lot of abortion underground networks did in the 60s but using just modern like pharmaceutical abortion medications.
0: Oh, Um, cool. Yeah, yeah, which they
1: use. Yeah, I don't have the names of them. Do you know the names of them? I
0: know like one of them is methotrexate, which I was actually thinking about this. So methotrexate is a chemo drug, which basically works with folic acid to like stop the growth of the spinal cord. And that's what causes, that's why you're not supposed to, be on methotrexate when you're pregnant because it will Mm -hmm. abort your pregnancy and that's why like if you take methotrexate and folic acid then that can counteract the functioning Mm -hmm. of methotrexate so if you're actively trying to have an abortion you're not supposed you're supposed to stop taking like prenatal vitamins Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise it might not work or you might have like a child with like a lot of defects. So, yeah, I know that that's the thing. And I was thinking about that when you were talking about the one woman who was like on chemo and she wanted to have an abortion. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. I wonder if in the 60s they even realized that chemo drugs did cause abortions.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So they were basically using like abortion medications that are used by just like the general healthcare system today. And they're doing this because she had access to these pharmaceuticals through like a friend who's in the healthcare care system who was kind of just like smuggling them over to her for her to use. Mm. Um, so other than these like modern pharmaceuticals, this underground network isn't really much different than the last in the 60s. Women are still seen from the very beginning to the end of their care, making sure that the termination in their pregnancy is safe and carried out to the fullest. And when the patient is done being seen, all the records are burned. So there's no evidence anything ever happened there, making sure the patient is never put in any awkward legal situation. Mm. And as so as these networks continue to take place in the United States, opinions on them are thrown around a lot. Some doctors say that using like medications aren't prescribed from a physician directly isn't really unsafe per se. But it's not like safe to use either at home because they would prefer patients seeing them directly. Mm. But other abortion methods such as suction haven't been studied enough to determine their safeness or effectiveness. So when they're like consulting these doctors on if these at-home networks are okay, they're like, I can't really say that because we don't know the data on such like home practices. But the women who run these networks really are like, okay, the doctors don't like us because they want a monopoly on the system,
0: Yeah, much like
1: in the 60s. So the women running these networks, like the networks today, want to create an alternative female healthcare system, much like the Jane Collective in the 1960s. They want something that's just completely different than modern healthcare in OBGYN practices. And I must say, I think the patients of these clinics feel the same way. One study was like surveying patients who had been to these underground networks, and they wanted to learn a little bit about why these women were like seeking out these networks instead of going to a Planned Parenthood or something. And they found that the women who sought out these services either wanted to avoid clinics for... You know, reasons such as taboo, protesters, being seen at the clinic, things like that. Or they wanted herbal like regiments instead of more westernized care. Or they just really wanted the comfort of a home when going through such a stressful time in their life. Mm. They would say that the sterile parts of the operation, the formality of doctors, they were just really off-putting and not welcoming at such a like, vulnerable and... Scary time for them, really. Right. And one patient surveyed was actually a transgender man who said that he did not feel comfortable going to a Planned Parenthood and therefore sought out alternative care. So that was interesting. I hadn't even thought of that of people in the LGBTQ community. Like, where do they seek care and where are they accepted to receive abortion care?
0: Right. As well,
1: especially when it's an experience that might be. Traumatizing to them for their own, whatever they're going through.
0: Right. That's very interesting.
1: The underground abortion network today is obviously still needed as much as before Roe v. Wade, because even with the legalization of abortions, the numbers pertaining to unsafe abortions across the world are, well, staggering, honestly. So statistics show that 42 million unintended pregnancies each year choose abortion and at least 20 million of these abortions are unsafe abortions. Wow. Of these 20 million, almost 70,000 mothers die, which equates to about 7 women an hour dying oh from an unsafe gosh. abortion. Yeah, that's a lot when you think about it in that perspective. Like by the time you listen to this episode, 7 women will have died, basically. Um and of the women who don't die, 5 million are left with complications such as hemorrhage, infection, sepsis, genital trauma, organ damage, and long-term complications such as post-abortion anemia, weakness, chronic inflammation, secondary infertility, and psychological damage. These numbers are terrifying and are a cause for a change, and many nations and states see this. So unsafe abortion rates drop significantly when abortion laws are lifted and like with the abortion laws being lifted, healthcare measures pertaining to public health, contraception and health education are increased. So you need both of those things to go hand in hand in order for unsafe abortion rates to drop. Because if you're going to lift a law and not provide any other like measures to help women, they're still going to need abortions. Right. In the end. And I mentioned before that abortion restrictions have increased in the U.S. over recent years, but so have proactive policies to like stop abortions before you know women need to get to that point. So since 2019, 145 policies have been put in place in the U.S. to expand abortion access, to address maternal mortality related to abortions, to improve sex education and expand contraceptive coverage. Okay, good. Yeah, so there's good things. There's good moves forward that can help decrease the number of women that seek out such unsafe abortions. But how will this affect these underground abortion networks if they aim to provide this new type of healthcare entirely? Because they're started to provide safe, illegal abortions, but they also have this other component of being this new type of care for women. So if states and And if countries are doing all the right things, if they're lifting abortion laws and they're providing access to sex education and contraceptives are readily available, like will women still seek out an alternative option to the more modern, westernized traditional healthcare system? My guess is probably yes, which kind of brings me around to the end of this conversation because I want to end it on this point that when we first started this podcast, like way back in the beginning, We really wanted to explore topics and learn stories of women from the past to allow us as medical students to better understand how to take care of our patients in the future. Yeah. I really can't think of a better example of that endeavor than this topic. Yeah. Because all I can think about while preparing this episode and reading these stories was that we have failed women. The healthcare system has failed women. Yeah. We go to school, like medical school and we learn how to best serve our patients. We learn how to ask them how they're feeling. We learn about how to ask about their medical and social history and how who they are affects their care. We learn how to be empathetic and how to make patients feel more comfortable in some of the most terrifying parts of their life. But after all of this, all this intention to do good, there's still something that's so wrong. Because women feel more comfortable receiving care outside of the system that was literally built to help them. Yeah. And that's really like makes me sad, makes me upset. And it really shows like how much work there is to be done and how many things we have to discuss. Yes. Yes. And with that, I'm ready to move into discussion if you are, Alicia.
0: I'm ready.
1: All right. Let's get into it then. So we are back. We're back. As always, just going to start off with our go to question, Alicia. What are your thoughts on this episode?
0: I think this topic in general is always very difficult to approach, not because I think that it's controversial in the sense that I think there's a clear right and clear wrong, but like Mm -hmm. obviously the discourse around it is so complex. But I appreciate you breaking it down in this like really understandable way and so the first thing I was thinking about was actually back when you were talking about the quickening and like Mm -hmm. how that was like when the baby moves and that that's like up to the woman's discretion of whether she's gonna say that the baby's moving or not or whatever I was actually thinking about that in relation to what you were saying later about like the heartbeat bill states that have this heartbeat bill which basically says like you can't have an abortion after. You detect a baby's heartbeat, but that's yeah. What what people don't realize about that is that that is at four weeks old. Like mm-hmm. your baby between like four to six weeks is like developing a heartbeat, and that's just a crazy concept because most women don't even know that they're pregnant at that point. Yep. So, yeah. So like it's that's just one example of how these laws prevent women from making safe and sound. Choices about their own bodies because it's literally not even possible. Like, systematically, Mm -hmm. biologically, so many women don't even realize that they're pregnant. And so, this law is basically using biology as a weapon against Mm -hmm. women's bodies. So, that was the first thing I was thinking about. Then, I was also thinking about what you were saying about how abortions and just thinking about abortions in general, how Getting an abortion at like a clinic or at all, honestly, getting an abortion at all is a scary experience, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And maybe not, not for everyone, of course, like we can't monopolize all people with uteruses, but abortions are this really intimate process. I would venture to say that most people who are getting them may be having an element of fear or shame or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And that, In itself is so intimidating. And then on Mm -hmm. top of that, we're like guilting them by making them listen to the fetal heartbeat and going through all of these nitty gritty things about a procedure. Like that's insane to me. When you go to get a surgery, just like a basic, like if you had to, for example, get like LASIK or something for your eye, the ophthalmologist doesn't sit down (laughs) with you and explain to you the gory details of you getting part of your lens cut off. (laughs) Yeah. Like they don't talk about that. They don't go through and say, okay. And then we go in and we cut off this part of the eye and we take it out and we use these instruments, like no surgery or think about like even a more complex surgery. Those Mm -hmm. no cardiothoracic surgeons going to explain to you the deep ins and outs of open heart surgery. So why are we going through all these lengths to explain the ins and outs of an abortion? hmm that didn't make sense to me either I was like I'm angry <laughs> and yeah and then the other thing that I think we'll probably talk about is just like the formality of doctors and mm-hmm. so I think that that kind of lends itself better to the next question but I was also thinking about that um when you first brought it up yeah
1: and I think with the like having to explain <laughs> the abortion to the patient like i don't know the ins and outs of why that law was created but i can only imagine like a physician doesn't want to sit through explaining this procedure that's hard on a physician and the patient like it's just meant to torture providers and patients to make them both not want to do abortions like a lot of the laws put in place were like the articles (laughs) would talk about how physicians would not want to perform abortions not because they don't believe in them or whatever, but because they were so scared because of all the restrictions that they would do something wrong because there were so many steps and that they would be in trouble like with the law, that they would just decide to not do abortions in general because there were just too many restrictions on them, which I thought was sad because there's not many providers out there, and there there could be if maybe restrictions were lifted a little bit you just increase yeah. care so no, much.
0: I agree. I remember in the first ever women's studies class I ever took that like introduced me to this and mm-hmm. kind of set me on this path. Women's studies 220, love it. <laughs> uh, Wednesday evenings, two <laughs> <Yeah>. hours, <laughs> hall full of women. Yeah, it was really 5.30, 7.30 PM. It was just like a whole lecture hall full of like people who identified as women and like maybe a handful of dudes. Mm -hmm. And like our boss, midwife, nurse, (laughs) professor. Anyway, we were talking about how abortion access is so scarce. Because the thing is, like, we are talking about, like, you said, like, 800 something providers or 800 something. There's like like 800 clinics. Yeah. Okay. Clinics, like 800 clinics. But of course, those clinics aren't spread equally across the United States. Right. Which is something else to consider, too, is that there's pockets of locations. And Mm -hmm. I remember we had a whole discussion about how I think in like Alabama or like Mississippi, there was no abortion clinic. And so, like, women who wanted to get an abortion would have to drive all the way to like one of the neighboring states. To find this like one doctor in the area Mm -hmm. was doing abortions. And I think that's just so unethical. Mm -hmm. That's like access to care for like anything else. Like if the only person doing the surgery is really far away, people go out of their way to make it possible for that person to get this surgery and get this care in, in many cases. Mhm. And this is just not one of those cases and another example of how women's bodies are politicized.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think like it was saying that a lot of clinics are out in California and maybe like near New York, but a lot in the middle just nothing. And when I was reading about abortion networks today, like one one thing was saying that there'll be like news articles or tweets and things like that where People post like code words and code sentences that point towards where Mm. you can find these underground abortion networks in the US. And a lot of them target across state lines. So, states that do have like people willing to perform abortions and then trying to reach out through social media or whatever to women in neighboring states who don't have that access to like come over and receive the care, which is wild. It's like, Oh my God, it's just so crazy that it's even needed, which I guess leads into the next question of like, there's all these things going on, but what can we do about it to help? And so this question we used to ask a lot at the beginning of our podcast, I realized then we kind of stopped. So I want to bring it back because it's just so relevant right now. So as future physicians or future or whatever healthcare provider, if you're listening, what can we do? as the healthcare field to make people with uteruses to people seeking abortions feel more comfortable seeking such care and how can we work to make abortions more accessible for the United States since that's where we live
0: (laughs) yeah yeah we can't speak much about the United States let alone other countries but I think this is where I was thinking about what you were saying Relating to the formality of doctors and how people mm-hmm. and women and people with uteruses specifically didn't feel comfortable approaching physicians about this. And so I think, like obviously, in our practices, for example, if we do end up becoming like OB guys or if we become like PCPs or whatever we end up going into, I think that's like a very special place to foster a different kind of patient physician relationship that's because it's so sensitive normalizing the discussion about it but also Mm -hmm. reassuring that like if you do sense that your patient is feeling uncertain or scared or fearful like really acknowledging that feeling Mm -hmm. being like I know that this is scary and you're doing what's best for you And that's exactly what you need to be doing. Like, I feel like humanizing yourself, we always say that, like, empathy is important. But I feel like in this case, it's especially important because the power dynamic is so vast. Right, It's not only vast in the fact that, like, this physician is doing potentially a procedure on you, but also the social implications of said procedure are immense. Just, like, Mm -hmm. way more immense than they would be if it was, LASIK eye surgery, for example, just different. It's different. I imagine it's similar in like gender affirming care and -hmm. gender affirming surgeries that not only is the surgery so key in that the surgeon or the healthcare team needs to have like really clear, open, honest, empathetic communication with the patient with the individual, but then also the social implications of said surgery are so important to consider too.
1: Yeah, for sure. I also think when it comes to like the physician-patient relationship and talking about abortions or undertaking it, like one thing that women brought up in that survey I mentioned about how they wanted to be at home for care and it was just more comfortable than like being in a cold, low-lit, doctor's office that just feels like so not homey is that the people in these underground networks they were all women, all in this together, and the care like someone to be talking and comforting the patient while receiving the abortion, like things that just made them feel more like safe and like there was a like a community with them at that time, right and I can see how women don't feel that in like healthcare settings sometimes. And that it's just like, when you go to the OB, it's just you laying on the table with your legs up in stirrups. It's like very, you know, it's very unnatural as we've talked about before. And it's uncomfortable. And now you're in a scary situation. You don't know what's going on. And it's just a lot. And I wonder how perspectives would change and like how things would change if we change the way we even provide abortion care to begin with. Yeah. If we had more people in the room, if we had it become just more comfortable and just if if offices were made to be more comforting and not so like scary, honestly. Right. If, right. How would it be different if physicians didn't wear white coats, like things that just yeah. all these power dynamics that are evident from the moment you walk into the office, if they just weren't there, like how different would care be, especially when it comes to Things like abortion, things like women seeking care when there's, or just people of color seeking care, like things where there's just inherent dynamics that have existed from the beginning of medical care. Sadly, that we need to break. Like, what are those things we could do to break those um, power dynamics that are so detrimental to care? Those are the things I think about.
0: <laughs> I know I was thinking about that too as you're talking about it. There's like a couple of things that come to mind. One is like on a larger like level the like it was reminding me of birthing centers versus hospital births mm-hmm. and how those are you know like birthing centers are locations that people can go to give birth and then they're they're supposed to be like reminiscent of like a home but they're connected yeah. to a hospital system so that you can kind of get the best of both worlds I'll right like, like, the like the if something were of to heading. happen right you could be rushed to the ER right. or whatever Right. (laughs) E-R-O-R. The O-R, yes. But yeah, so like I was thinking about that. And then I was also thinking about, I was shadowing um, Deb Berman, as you know. Love Deb Berman. She's in Maternal (laughs) Fetal Medicine at Michigan Medicine. We interviewed her for one of our bonus episodes and we were seeing a patient and she was like after she was basically describing This concept of like verbal anesthesia because that's what she was doing with the patient was kind of like distracting it was basically distracting Mm -hmm. but I was just thinking about that because the patient was really freaking out like just like stress as what has happens in the doctor's office as you would be (laughs) yeah yeah and so this she called it verbal anesthesia which I thought was like a really good way of describing it and I just never heard that that. term before I'm sure it's like very common but I had never heard it Mm -hmm. so um I think that's something else too is like both verbal anesthesia to distract but then also like caring words and like kindness Mm -hmm. that's like especially necessary in these sensitive moments
1: yeah Yeah. I agree and I also wanted to say like there's things that doctors can do outside of the office as well. Like they can petition the lawmakers and try to like work with policy and making it like more evident to explain to policymakers, the horrible parts of unsafe abortions and why it's important to have safe and legal abortions, even if it's not your own cup of tea. Like you're allowed to not like abortions, but believe that women have the right to choose and want to look out for the safety of women still like you can have those two differing opinions while looking out for everyone. So I think physicians like play a role in that as they do in all health policy and like all public health matters because this is a public health issue. Like women are dying seven women an hour. That's a lot all because yeah. of unsafe abortions. So
0: that's another like facet I think is huge. No, I completely agree. I think that especially with this topic I think health policy in general is so key and like, there's all these systemic, I mean, if we could fix the system, then most of the topics that we talk about on our podcast probably (laughs) wouldn't come up. But I think, especially for this, and I'm not one to be like, yeah, we need to change the system like all the time because I am more focused on like the immediate, like what can I do in this situation Mm -hmm. as someone who is working within a system Just because I recognize my own role and my own own limits. I don't Mm -hmm. have the wherewithal that others have or this view that others have that I admire so much, but I just don't have it. Like, I don't have this ability to see beyond where I am. Yeah. But for this, I can see beyond where I am. Like for Mm -hmm. this topic, I think legislation needs to change because having a heartbeat bill is useless.
1: Yeah, it's basically like, the like how I was saying it's legal to restrict abortion as far as you can, as long as women still have a choice. But women don't have a choice with that heartbeat bill because yeah. it looks like they do on paper. But if you have the knowledge of a physician, you would know you don't have the choice. And I think that's a lot of the issues with abortion laws, is that the people making them might not actually understand pregnancy or what abortion does or is or the effects like they're not in the healthcare field where you study this and you like really come to learn it and that's why it's such an important topic that needs that like advising that physicians can do
0: with policymakers like more than anything really no I agree and I think especially this topic like gets really wishy-washy with like separation of church and state and then who is making decisions and it's such a complicated topic. It's Mm -hmm. insane. Like we could sit here and piece out everyone who has a stake in the game and why they're choosing to ignore straight up facts because of their beliefs that they are choosing to put at the forefront of their decision-making. Like it's honestly crazy. I, I can't wrap my head around it. And it makes me really, really heated just thinking about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we could be here all day. But so we're not here all day. We'll move on to the next question. Mm -hmm. So, both underground abortion networks I mentioned in the 60s and today were working to create this alternative female healthcare system. So, what I was wondering is what do these networks say about the importance and maybe like the need that they're trying to? Fill for a female-centered space within healthcare, if that makes sense.
0: (laughs) It does make sense, and I think it's basically like calling for it. It's Mm -hmm. yearning for it. I mean, these women are forming these networks because one mistrust in the medical community, and two because they want to feel like they have a safe space where they can just go for their issues to be talked about and. And figured out. And I feel like the closest Mm -hmm. comparison I can make is like Planned Parenthood, which even that is too medicalized for these women Mm -hmm. or some people, which I recognize when you mentioned the trans man who didn't feel Mm -hmm. like they could go to Planned Parenthood. That's really valid. And that's a perspective that I can't begin to understand, but it's something that we have to consider and we have to understand and be more aware of. -hmm. And try to fix, like, we should try to be making spaces where people can feel more safe and do it within a law abiding, safe, patient centered place. Yeah. But, but the other thing I was also thinking about based on this question is like, what women are we including, right? You Mm -hmm. mentioned before women of color, like women that have like an immigrant status. Maybe women who have illegal or foreign immigrant status, those things Mm -hmm. also play as those things also act as barriers to care. And so, how do we bring in those people or individuals into the spaces that are safe too? Yeah. That's like a whole nother layer of complexity that has to be considered. Yeah. I
1: totally agree. I really think these networks, like when I said before, like, if we fixed everything, if everything was fixed to allow for safe legal abortions to happen, do I think these networks would still exist? And I do because everything you just mentioned, basically, like there is this gaping hole in healthcare and in the hole is everyone who's been marginalized by healthcare in the past, not be, not knowing where to go. Right. And these type of centers are like a space where. People finally know where to go and they finally feel yeah. cared for and like the providers aren't in a level above them. Like people said they felt like they were family and they're providing child care. That's huge for like patients to be able to go to the doctor and care for themselves and care for their family too. Yeah. There's just a lot of things that they're providing to patients that the healthcare system cannot. Yeah. And I don't know like how you fix that. And there's a lot of issues. I think like one thing I wanted to bring up too is medical care is not female centered at all, as we know. It is built on a male-centered system. So even trying to be be in like a female-centered space in healthcare is kind of impossible because everything's based on a male anyway. So then if you're really seeking like that female energy and whatever you need to feel like you're really accepted in that space. It's even harder, just in, like in general, it's just impossible, I don't know. Yeah, I really think this episode and this discussion more than any has really shown a light on how we need to be second guessing like everything in healthcare as we become providers and really think outside the box. Because like I mentioned before, we're in school trying to learn all the right things to do to care for a patient and it's still not doing it. So, us moving through the system need to be trying, need to be looking at that from all angles and listening to people and really taking into account what their experiences and thoughts mean as we learn how to be like the best doctors that we can be. So, hopefully, we can be the space that women can go to in the future um, to have access to legal, safe care. Because ideally, in the end, we won't need these underground networks. They can be above ground and be accepted and can be places that women can feel like really safe in receiving care. Yeah, I hope so, too. Yeah. So with that, if you enjoyed our episode today, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. We're available on like all podcasting apps. Also, if you have time, go ahead and leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts is the best place for that. Also, I have recently discovered it is kind of difficult to figure out how to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So if you need help with that, go on over to our Instagram and you can see a little explanation on how to do that to help you out there.
0: Yes. So as she mentioned, we have the Instagram. So go follow us on the Instagram. Check out our Facebook. We post a lot of content like in those places. And so you can find out more. And you can also go to our website for our show notes sources, merch, it's from skritzestrubs.com. I know, I love our merch. We have (laughs) a bunch of things on there. Bunch of resources that you can check out.
1: Yeah. And as our podcast grows, we're interested in doing more collaborations and making bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in
0: working with us, just shoot us an email or an Insta DM. Absolutely. And lastly, of course, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us.
1: Yay! Yay. See you all next time!